This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Day. And I am Jillian Mason. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Jillian, marriage is what <laughs> brings us together today. <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> that was good. That was really uh -huh. good. Yes. And if you're old enough to remember The Princess Bride, but not too old to not remember it, then then yes, you you you, you vividly remember you this thing. Yes. <laughs> but yes, we are today talking about the relationship between taking your vows and taking your medicine. So insert your ball and chain joke here, but it turns out I couldn't believe this, that in 2020, more than one quarter of everyone who got married said that they took the plunge because one of the partners involved needed health insurance. It's like one of the primary drivers of marriage today in, in America. Family first country, for sure. Yikes. So, <laughs> And it, it seems like, you know, couples are obviously staying together also for the insurance as well. So in this episode, we're going to like break down how our healthcare system is basically set up to get us paired up. Oh my gosh, Jillian, this intro you wrote has so many snappy <laughs> one-liners. It's like one after another. I just got to keep them going here. I drank a lot of caffeine today and my episode notes reflect that. Um, that's right. Uh -huh. <laughs> taking your vows and taking your medicine set yeah. up to get us paired up. Hell yeah. yeah. And also how Medicare for All obviously could save you a trip down the aisle. <laughs> so, well, wait, let me just say, okay, so whereas I have inserted a number of little snappy jokes in here, mm -hmm. because, you know, that's just who I am. But also, you know, millions of comedians over time have basically established the unquestionable fact that marriage is hilarious. That being said, on today's episode, we're also going to be talking about some of the dark side of marriage, which includes domestic violence. And we know that's a topic that can raise some really traumatic feelings in survivors or, you know, may not be appropriate for any kids you have in the room. Also, you probably don't want to teach. <laughs> you probably don't want to tell your kids about our healthcare system, which is also terrible. Also traumatic, yeah. Also that. And of course, we also want to remind people that if you or someone you know needs help with a domestic violence situation, that you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233 to find resources in your area. It's truly sad that we need to do this to even be able to talk about the healthcare system, Jillian. But one of my questions was for you, you did a lot of the research for this episode. Are people really getting married only for health insurance? 
You betcha, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it turns out that yes, people are really getting married for the health. And okay, I acted surprised when I asked that, but I'm actually not that surprised because I, yeah, I know at least yeah. one or two of them. <laughs> <laughs> we hear about people's healthcare horror stories every day. We've seen some shit, but obviously, we can't demonstrate statistically that these couples got married only for insurance, and, and we really hope that some affinity for each other was involved as well. But basically, this affordablehealthinsurance.com did a survey and they found out that 26% of American couples married in 2020s that they got hitched because their partner needed insurance. And of course, this number spiked in 2020 because, I don't know, Ben, do you remember something significant that happened in 2020? Hmm, I just can't recall. <laughs> well, it would be the pandemic. So 7.7 million people lost their jobs, right? And had to find an alternative to their health, health right. insurance, right? Right. So yeah, so in that same survey, 28% of respondents who are making less than 50K reported that they got married for insurance. So the less money you make, the more likely you are to get booed up so that you can go see a doctor. And also, some people do this not because they lost a job, but because their employer's insurance changed or they decided to skimp on coverage. And right. so, you know, we see a lot of stories about that. Well, it's shocking that so many marriages end in divorce since their origins were so deeply rooted in <laughs> <Romantic>. <laughs> love and affection. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's romantic. <laughs> uh, yeah. So our listeners might not know this, but Ben, you are actually planning a wedding right now. And so I think the most important question on my mind is, are you just getting married for the insurance? No, fortunately, we, we do have health insurance here at Healthcare Now, even though we can barely, True. barely afford it as like a tiny nonprofit. It is like literally breaking the bank every single year. But because of the business we're in, we would be just like raging, raging hypocrites if we did not offer health insurance for our employees. <laughs> And this is also why, you know, this marriage is going to turn out extremely well, because I am not just using her for her excellent, excellent workplace insurance. But, <laughs> but you know, should anything ever happen to healthcare now, if people don't make enough donations, for example, during our emergency mm -hmm. fundraising mm -hmm. drive this, this year, I might need it somewhere down the road. So always a nice benefit. Big shout out to Jenny as well, because she puts up with you on a regular basis. And I know that you wouldn't be half the decent person you are today without Jenny. Yes. As one person who puts up with me to another, you know, the, the pain <laughs> and suffering involved. And so I guess I've just admitted that I have very few qualifications to talk about marriage. Whereas you, Jillian, exceptionally, uh, your CV, Zero. long, <laughs> long. <laughs> Zero qual yes, I have zero qualifications to talk about marriage, as my parents remind me on a regular basis. <laughs> my partner and I have been together for 20 years, 20 years. Most marriages don't do that well. And we've been engaged for 10 of them. And we've kind of admitted to ourselves that we're never going to get married. So it's a perm engagement, perm engagement. It's like, it a, is. It it's is. like the permafrost. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Moving on to the, the, uh, Oh, you don't want to talk about our personal lives some more. <laughs> you know that we are basically incapable of not talking about our personal lives. So we'll be intertwining throughout the rest of the episode, more <laughs> hilarious and terrible things about ourselves, but to get to the sort of weird and kind of terrible intertwining of 
marriage and legal marriage and relationships and the healthcare system in the United States. How does getting married kind of impact a person's access to health insurance, you know, overall? Number one, it's really messed up that it does it all. Right. Yeah. (laughs) As someone who has complicated feelings about marriage, right? But regardless, marriage does change how you qualify for health insurance subsidies, particularly under the Affordable Care Act. And so once you're married, your combined income actually determines if you're eligible for help. So as a couple, right, you can earn a joint income of up to 400% of the federal poverty level, and that's 69,000, right? So like 70,000 a year to qualify for premium subsidies. And if you earn, and again, this is like combined, Mm -hmm. if you earn combined more than 70,000, you might qualify for an extended subsidy. And it is so much harder to, because it uses the federal poverty guidelines, which are so messed up. I mean, they're hard to qualify for as an individual, but they're much harder to qualify for as a, a couple or a family. Yeah, totally. And I mean, if you think about it, like $70,000 a year is, you know, that certainly wouldn't pay mortgage on a house in Massachusetts. It wouldn't pay rent for, you know, a place in California Mm -hmm. or New York, right? So we're already talking about a really low income uh, threshold here. So family deductibles also, we should keep in mind, right? And the out-of-pocket costs that come with insurance, like co-pays, et cetera, et cetera, right? They tend to be about twice as much as those for individuals. Mm And the premiums are higher, obviously, if yeah. you have to pay for them. Um, and we'll get we'll get a little bit later also to the the family plans that you can get through your workplace, which are much much more expensive. Usually, I mean, they cost more to the employer, and then the employer shifts more of those costs onto you than they do for individual plans. Right, right, right. And it comes to that kind of economic thing, right? Like, so like Kaiser Family Foundation found that on average, the health spending by families that had large employer health plans, right, has actually increased two times faster than workers' wages over the past decade. Lovely, lovely. Wild, wild shit, right? So yeah, so it basically, you know, it turns out that being married actually is not that helpful for your health insurance, unless you're getting that employer coverage from your partner. Right. And just to state the the glaringly obvious, if you have a Medicare for all system, like almost all the developed world does and much of the developing world, marriage doesn't matter. Everyone is qualified for healthcare coverage for free and getting married or not does not affect your access to healthcare. So we're, everything we're talking about here is a, is a very, is kind of a U.S. specific twisted thing in which getting Mm -hmm. marriage can help or hurt your chances of getting the healthcare you need. It's almost like in other countries, they recognize that you're human, whether or not you get married. That's that's not a family value statement, Jillian. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course. We all know that public policy has nothing to do with our values. (laughs) (laughs) At least, I don't know, I live in Texas, so. Family values means you don't care about individuals anymore. So, and also (laughs) not families sometimes. After they're born, yeah. (laughs) Right, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think we all, we all knows those statistics, right? You know, 
but we're seeing more and more people talking in public about it, which I think is really important, right? Because we all know that problem doesn't really exist until someone's posted on Reddit about it. So there was actually a major article in the uh, Wall Street Journal in 2020, where Francesca Fontana, who's a journalist, she wrote about her story. Her boyfriend had an autoimmune disease. And so she ended up marrying her boyfriend, you know, just so that they could subsidize those costs. And then and then the op-ed department vetoed it. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how that conflicts with the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal. Yep. And a couple of things. <laughs> oh, man. A- another kind of just like blatant story on Reddit. Again, it, if it isn't on Reddit, it didn't happen. But this woman wrote in and I just thought, you know, the way she put it, like just makes so much sense, right? She said, my best friend and I are not in a romantic relationship and never will be as far as I'm concerned. We've been besties for eight years now, and I can't fathom being anything more than friends. For the next months, I'll still be on my dad's Humana military TRICARE insurance. And when I turn 21, I will lose it. I have chronic illnesses and I'm on a handful of medications that I can't pay for without insurance. I also don't have a job that provides health insurance and I believe government aid in this country is an absolute last resort. So she's come up with a solution. My friend has a factory job with amazing health insurance and he offered to marry me so I can be on his insurance. I feel bad taking advantage of him like that, but it seems like my best option, right? We already know that we're trying, we're going to, be, going to be in each other's lives forever. She says, I've tried to get rid of him. It didn't work, LMAO. And basically, they hope to live together in the future. And they have agreed on this situation. And so basically, you know, he said he'll be getting a bunch of benefits by being married. He's just a friend helping out a friend, isn't he? It's funny because, you know, in this country, we're supposed to think of marriage as being like sacred, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we set up this system where it is so much easier for this person to completely forgo (laughs) marriage, you know, marriage for love and that sacred institution and just use it as a vehicle for for health insurance. Well, I hope her credit score is good for his sake. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I have to give a I have to give a little rant here. Oh my so, god, yes. <laughs> Ben's obsessed with reality TV. Can we just start there? I'm not obsessed with reality TV, but I have Love. some I have some quite guilty guilty pleasures and one of the guiltiest right now is a show called Married at First Sight. I cannot in good conscience encourage you to watch it. So you should probably just listen to my summary and then not not watch it at all. But the, the, the premise is that relationship experts match two people together who they think would be a good couple. And then those two people are married and they see meet each other for the first time as they're being married. And then it's just like, you now you've just got to make it work, like make this relationship work. The, the idea was, you know, for many, many years, there's arranged marriages that actually mm. it's more about your ability to navigate a relationship and communicate and and commitment to make it work than it is about like finding someone else with the exact right traits or you know <laughs> hobbies or whatever you know this is such a generous depiction of this show right like, yes you're like you know it really stresses communication and <laughs> relationship skills 
No, the whole point is that they introduce people to other people, tell them to get married, and then it devolves into a catastrophe, right? Okay, possibly, possibly that's right. I, I was, I was, <laughs> I was shining the poop turd because I watch it and I didn't want you to think too, so poorly of me. But <laughs> <laughs> one revealing moment to me was from this season. There's this dude, Miguel, who is married to this woman, Lindsay, mm. and kind of early on in their marriage came out that she, you know, she works on kind of a contractor type job where she doesn't get, she doesn't have an employer, a standard employer who like pays for her, her health insurance. So she's uninsured. They both live in California and he has a good job that has, you know, family health benefits, but he refused to extend to her his insurance coverage <laughs> because she was not agreeing to take his last name. He was like, <laughs> yes. So it was a total power play. He was like, the woman is supposed to take the man's last name. Like, if you're not going to show that commitment to me, then I'm not going to show you the commitment of, then I don't feel, you know, secure enough. He's like, oh, it's a big deal to extend your insurance coverage. And she, you know, they got in this crazy fight. She lost her shit. And she's like, so you're just okay with seeing me die. And I, I totally agreed with her hundred percent. She was mm -hmm. absolutely right. And then the rest of the show, they're like, oh man, Lindsay just went off the handle. She lost her shit. She has like issues. And I was like, <laughs> so anyway, so she was shamed for this, but it was also, it was just, you could see as clear as day on the screen, how this providing dependent coverage, so to speak. I mean, literally they even call it dependent coverage. Like now mm. you're dependent on me is used as a power play within relationships. In this case, almost like, fur trading, like uh, you give me your name and I'll give you insurance. <laughs> but I think often it happens more subtly where it's used as just leverage to, to, to be controlling in a relationship. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah. And we're going to get to that in a minute, right? Mm -hmm. But I did want to kind of get more into, because it's it's deeply related to this issue of employer coverage and family coverage, right? Which mm -hmm. are two of the main ways that people get their health insurance in this right. country. Either they get it from their job or they get it from a family member who has a job, right? And so, all right. So do we want to just kind of go through what some of the problems are with having this kind of a system where your employer lawyer has control of your family. <laughs> yes, let me count the ways. Miguel is number one. I'm still steaming over Miguel. Fucking God damn you, it, Miguel. Miguel. <laughs> well, to state a couple of obvious things that are probably clear to most people, but maybe you have to think it through all the way. I, I was actually surprised that most employers who offer any insurance coverage do offer some type of family insurance as well. Usually there's two types. There's like plus one coverage for just a spouse. And then there's family coverage that includes a spouse plus children. So the vast majority, like, you know, more than 95% of employers that offer any insurance offer uh, family coverage as well. But you may know that in many states, same-sex marriage is illegal. I think in most states, same-sex marriage is wah, wah. not allowed. And in those states, employers, uh, less than 50% of employers offer coverage for domestic partners rather so wait yes. so even though like a same-sex marriage is legally federally this is still an issue oh actually I, yeah no it probably after the supreme court ruling it's it's gotten better but yeah oh. so yeah so based on the you know just the marriage percentages so like if if you go down the line like for example 
very few part-time employees are offered health insurance. Mm -hmm. People in retail mm -hmm. work are not offered health insurance. People in certain industries, agriculture, are not offered health insurance as often. Right. So right. if you're if you fall into one of these categories, like women, people of color who are often more likely to be working part-time, more likely to work in these industries, you are less likely to have insurance coverage that you can then extend to a family member. Mm. Um, and if you're a group that's less likely to be married, then you are also less likely to qualify for the domestic partner coverage. Got it, so, got yeah. it, got it, got it. Okay, cool. I mean, not cool, like yes. very uncool actually. Right. Um, and this is not, this is bad news for you too. If you ever need health insurance through, through John, you're in deep trouble as domestic partners, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I mean, luckily, so luckily Texas, just brief story time here. Mm. Luckily, Texas is a common law marriage state. Um, oh, as opposed okay. to, mm -hmm. we, we spent most of our relationship together in Massachusetts, which is not a common law state. But the way that common law marriage works is that I think it's, uh, there's a certain, a requirement of a certain amount of time that you have to mm -hmm. be living together, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, again, John and I have been together for 20, 20 years. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're on that. And then the second part of it, though, is that you have to be able to document instances where the other person has acknowledged you as their spouse in public. Huh. And so, <laughs> so every time we like get into a conversation with someone and they're like, oh, your wife. And he just like doesn't correct them because it's just like a pain in the ass to correct people mm -hmm. every time. Right. Uh, yeah. Every every time I, uh, I you know, sort of chalk it up a little bit afterwards Coming and then up. I'm just like a few more times in public when he doesn't dispute the idea that I'm his wife and I can take mm -hmm. half of everything he owns. <laughs> Good. Nicely done. I love this you, John. I love long term so planning, long term planning. <laughs> um, so this gets, so we, we were sort of hinting, especially with this, this uh, Miguel story and some of the stories yeah, you were, you were yeah, talking yeah. about, about just how dangerous this is for relationships because it creates an economic power dynamic, a really important one within relationships. And, you know, you, both of us, we were doing a training a couple of months ago and we had one participant interviewing another with a healthcare survey. And it included a question about, you know, have you ever stayed in a job to keep health insurance, which is very, very common. And the respondent who is answering the survey said, no, they, they had never stayed in it. Well, they, maybe they had, but they skipped over it, but they said, but I have stayed in an abusive marriage for many years because at least in part, they were relying on the family health plan for coverage of their partner. Um, and this really kind of set us aback. And I know you, Jillian, tried to like look into whether this was, you know, yeah. is, this, is this a common thing? It's, it's interesting because, you know, 85% of people who are in abusive relationships are uh, women who are being abused by men. So I'm probably going to fall into some gendered language here, but it's actually based in like a real life fact, right? And that's not to minimize other people who have been victims of abuse. But that being said, you know, because domestic violence is largely seen as a woman's issue, there hasn't been nearly enough research on it almost as if researchers don't give a fuck about women's suffering and problems. <laughs> Just, Just a, <laughs> a footnote. <laughs> there's, there's no study that said mm -hmm. that. That was just my editorializing. All right, but regardless, there hasn't been a lot of research on this. Um, mm -hmm. But folks have begun to study the way that healthcare figures into domestic violence, and it definitely does. Mm -hmm. So there's this 2007 study in Boston, and it showed that you know nearly one in five women that they surveyed who had been
experiencing intimate partner violence, right, which is another word for another term for domestic violence. But a, a quarter, uh, nearly a, a nearly one in five of those women, right, they they said that they had also experienced their partner interfering with their access to healthcare, and that mm-hmm. ranged from a bunch of different things, right, from like preventing them from going to doctor's appointments to you know interfering with their treatments to accompanying them to doctor's appointments so they weren't actually able to talk to doctors, etc. So we do know that like that that's part of the kind of controlling behavior and profile of abusive folks. We also know a couple of other things, right? And one of them is that abusive women in abusive relationships have worse health outcomes, and that is completely unsurprising, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes up to and includes, you know, a totally avoidable death, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that's because of, you know, physical violence, right? Like as if your husband is beating the shit out of you every night, right? You're going to develop some chronic health problems and acute health care problems because of that. But also that psychological impact and the constant stress of living with violence um, that causes women to have issues for everything from gastrointestinal problems to mental health and substance abuse stuff. Um, so we know that women in abusive relationships desperately need health care. And we also know that because of that employer-based system that we were talking about, right, that women in abusive relationships face some particular challenges. And the the reason is because economic abuse is so rampant, right? right? One of the ways that abusive partners control their partners, right, is by, you know, controlling their access to money, right? That's right. a huge yeah. part of it. And so, you know, women, over 90% of battered women who are interviewed in this, uh, in, in one study, they actually said that they had uh, resigned or been terminated from a job in the last two years because of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And those women reported that like their partners had used, you know, a number of different tactics to prevent them from going to work, um, right. including you know, physically restraining them or, you know, just not making a shared car available. Right. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so which also limits their access to employer sponsored health insurance, among other things. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Right, like women who, just to quote quote this study, right, women experiencing recent intimate partner violence work fewer hours at lower wages and have unstable work Mm -hmm. uh, patterns, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you combine this all together, right, you've got an employer-based healthcare system, and then you've got men who are controlling their wives by preventing them from accessing employment because it would bring them financial independence. You basically have a recipe for disaster, right? You've got a system that's just keeping women dependent on their abusers, you know? Older men, as we just talked about, are way more likely to have access to these insurance plans that have family coverage, so... Exactly, exactly. So this is like the very grim situation where it really is, the system really is set up to create a situation where women have a hard time uh, leaving in part because of healthcare really just plays into that economic abuse. Um, Yeah, and you've got to expect that COVID exacerbated probably all of this, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so I I do want to give a shout out to the ACA, though, because Mm -hmm. the ACA actually made a couple of different improvements that really impacted Mm -hmm. uh, women in domestic violence situations access to healthcare, including just like kind of the things you might 
already think of, right? So, you know, if Medicaid expansion has, you know, happened in your state, then, you know, maybe low-income folks and survivors of domestic violence tend to be working with low or no income, right? Um, you know, would have more access to healthcare. Um, you know, theoretically, the ACA, of course, was supposed to lower costs, right? Um, so those things, um, and even- Very like, theoretically, right. <laughs> <laughs> theoretically. Um, and even like at being able to like access the healthcare system through a website, like actually played a role in a lot of domestic violence. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they didn't actually have to depend on that shared family car or the right, ability to right, get right. out of the house to talk to mm -hmm. someone. Um, and then also the ACA actually had two specific provisions for domestic violence survivors. Mm -hmm. One of them was that if you remember at the beginning of the ACA, uh, they were fining folks for not having health insurance. And the ACA came with a, a waiver for that fine for domestic violence survivors. And then also they created a special enrollment period for women who were leaving uh, domestic violence situations. Right, right. right. Um, so that basically allowed them to enroll in health insurance if they were in the middle of, you know, divorcing their partner, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Yeah. Well, there were some good things in the ACA, especially expansion coverages. Um, some things. Yes, exactly. But it, it didn't, I mean, as long as you're linking health insurance to the workplace, then it's, it's basically going to be... Uh, a sexist disaster among other things so yeah <laughs> and yeah, it, yeah and it's just going to replicate all of the inequalities in the workplace or in the, the the job market i guess which are quite extensive it turns out i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no it's absolutely true it's mm -hmm. like i mean uh yeah it's it just goes to what we're always pointing out here right which is the way that the for-profit healthcare system has just like perverted the relationship between, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> sorry, uh, between, um, you know, people in medicine, right? Um, and it perverts all of our social relationships and, and creates a kind of, um, yeah, yeah. I think I, the name that I started saying pervert because we're currently getting spammed on our Facebook live. <laughs> by YouTube, someone I who think, says yeah. they have hot girl picks for us. Um. <laughs> I just banned them, but they got three in there. So well, moving, yeah. typing quickly. Thank you for listening. Um, yeah. <laughs> girls 18 XYZ. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Anyway, um, but yeah, so, you know, again, we know that Medicare for all would actually ultimately be the thing that would be um, most liberating for uh, for folks. Yeah. Yeah. And allow yeah. them to make decisions based on love like Ben's done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, as should we all. Although I, I have no judgment for people who get married for for health insurance. I mean, oh, yeah. Within no. the current system, like, go for it. Um, and I did, I forgot to go over the, the, the cost for family coverage. Um, it, it's mm, totally wild. Mm. So the, the, the cost for an individual health plan is like, it's a little over $7,000, but the average cost now nationally for a family plan is over $21,000. So, I mean, just mm. stop in your mind, think about how much you earn and subtract $21,000 from it. It's like, it's totally insane. And even when you look at like uh, a lot of people don't have to think about it in their mind, they can just look in their bank. Accounts. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just totally, uh, totally unaffordable. Um, but even for employers who are paying, uh, covering or providing uh, the family plan, they force you to pay a much higher percentage of family plans than they do individual plans. 
So for example, for uh, individual coverage, and this is, I mean, even the individual numbers are kind of wild. The average employee contribution is uh, over $1,600, and that's like 22% of the total costs. But for a family plan, the average employee contribution is uh, closer to $6,200, and it's like 30% of the costs. So uh, employers see the huge price tag and they don't want to pay it for you. So they're pushing it off uh, disproportionately onto workers, which means that it's even harder to afford for, for working class people than, than an individual plan, which is hard mm. enough as it is. So Sounds like some bullshit to me, Ben. Yes. Well, what is not bullshit is our amazing podcast team, Jillian. Ah. How'd you like that segue? That's good. <laughs> um, so I want to thank our, the podcast team. Podcast manager is Angelique Davis. Our researcher for this episode was Lindsay Beish. And our show notes writer was uh, Jerry Katz. Our audio editor was Arena Budanova. And I should uh, remind you, don't forget to like this episode. Subscribe to the Medicare for All podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And this is a project of the Healthcare Now Education Fund. Yay! So if you would like to support our work, you can donate at our website, healthcare-now.org. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Stay safe and stay dangerous. <laughs>